We are finishing up Esther, Esther chapter 9, technically and 10, though we won't read any of chapter 10, which is only like, um, like five verses in chapter 10 of Esther. So uh, it's a little bit about Mordecai and the taxes and different things in the kings and the province of Persia. So uh, we're going to finish up Esther as we think about uh, the story that we've been going over the last few months. I think it's been a few months. I do have a couple charts left the timelines of Esther. If you would like one, you can get one. Uh, as we've done a little bit of a deeper dive into Esther, I hope it's been beneficial and helpful as we think about this book. This was one of the very few that is on my list of things that I had not taught, and now I can, of course, cross that off. And I don't know what we're going to do starting three Sunday nights from now in, in the new year, but we'll figure something out. When we left off, of course, in Esther 8, the stage had been set not yet accomplished, but the stage had been set for the salvation of the Jews in Esther 8, verse 15. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in fine robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Susa, of course, is the capital. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor in every province and in every city where the king's command and edict reached. There was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Very uh, opposite, really, to the original decree, Haman's decree, where there was confusion and chaos and sadness and, oh, no, what's going on? Here we have the opposite. And, of course, I think it's interesting that many of the people in the capital, they're like, oh yeah, we're definitely Jews. We've been Jews the whole time. I think that's ridiculous, of course. We, we understand that. Because they're afraid. They know that this counter-decree has been issued. But remember, of course, that the actual event, the thing that all these decrees are looking toward, is like eight months in the future. This is happening in the third month. Uh, all of these things are happening in the twelfth month, the day that these things are going to take place. Uh, Haman's original decree, right, was in the first month, and, and it's looking forward year in advance. Uh, it takes three months for Esther and the people started to get their things together to confront Haman and confront the king. That happens in the third month. And then the, the counter decree goes out. So we're still, you know, nine, eight or nine months in the future. These things are going to happen. So this is a, a long drawn out thing over the course of this year. Now the book just skips over that intervening nine months. It's not significant. So when the 12th month comes in chapter nine, the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out. And again, both edicts are being carried out. That was one of the whole main plot points of the book. You can't revoke the first edict. So the first edict gave people permission to kill the Jews. The second edict gave the Jews permission to fight back, right? That was the whole point of the two edicts. Basically, they're bureaucratizing a war. That's what's going on here. Uh, and when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. And we've said this before. This might be the thesis statement of the book or the main idea of the book. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. They gathered in their cities throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay a hand on those who sought their harm. No one could stand against them for fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. So the, the, the sentiment of the public sentiment has really swung toward the Jews to the extent that they're getting governmental help, right? The satraps and the governors and the, all of these different people for fear of Mordecai. I think it's interesting. The book has really emphasized Mordecai's role in all of this 
Esther as the one who's bearing the original threat in approaching the king, and then Mordecai as the one who's drafted the decree, Mordecai who has then taken this position of power in Persia, and it's really Mordecai's influence that leads the government officials to help the Jews. And you can kind of see how their, their brains are working through this. We're going to help the Jews, and then Mordecai, who seems to be second in command, he'll look kindly on us, and he'll give us a good report, and things will work out for us. It's not altruistic, right? This is very self-serving. Verse 4, Mordecai was great in the king's house. His fame had spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed... I'm not going to read those names. They're the ten sons of Haman, and the son, uh, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And, and here's a thing that's going to come up several times in chapter 9. But they laid no hands on the plunder. It is specific in the decree that they're allowed to, if they want to. And that was part of the original decree of Haman. You're going to kill the Jews and take all their stuff. The Jews do not do that. And it, the text goes out of its way in chapter 9 to emphasize three or four times the Jews are not going to do that. They're not going to take the plunder. That was the very number, uh, the very, that very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. The references to plunder, which again we'll see several times, are an important framing device in intentionality, motivation, and framing the attitude of the Jews. That this is not about hatred and revenge, as it was the decree of Haman, who hated the Jews, wanted revenge on Mordecai, didn't like Mordecai, didn't like the Jews. And so that decree is crafted out of hatred and anger and bitterness and resentment. The counter-decree, Mordecai's decree, is crafted out of defense. And that is carried out, that is practically played out in the fact that the Jews are not doing this to get wealthy. They're not doing this to accumulate possessions. They're doing this to defend themselves and bring about not revenge, but justice. Which is why, of course, they end up killing Haman's ten sons. And the real thing that emphasizes that is the fact that they leave all the stuff alone. Now, I don't know what happens to the stuff. It probably defaults to the king by default. It just defaults to the government. Or maybe it's defaulted and distributed among the families of those who were killed. I don't know. It, the text doesn't go into that. But it is important to frame this war. It is a war. It's a battle to frame it as one born out of hatred versus justice, aggression versus defense. The Jews are simply defending themselves. Verse 12, the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the provinces? What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. Now, here's an interesting thing here. Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow to do according to this day's edict. So we're extending it out one more day. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. They've already been killed, right? He says, the ten sons of Haman have been killed. Now Esther wants to make an example. And if there's anything in the story that demonstrates a little bit vindictiveness, I think this might be it. Of course, one of the main plot points, again, as we've gone throughout the book, is Haman ultimately wanted to hang and we, I think we said this last week, there's not a great analog word in English. It has more to do with impaling, really. 
Uh, but this, of course, hanging on the gallows that Haman had built and wanted to construct. And now the reverse occurred. We're seeing that over and over and over. Now the ten sons of Haman. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa. The ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar. They killed 300 men in Susa. And again, we see they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, if you're thinking about these ten sons, they were killed the first day, they're hanged on the second day. It's an example, right? It's a, a, a public show. This is the consequence. And you can go a couple of different ways with this. This is the consequence for messing with the king's bride. Maybe that's what is being, the, the idea that's being presented here. He tried to kill Esther. This is what happens. Of course, we know that that actually isn't the case, even though the king, in his mind, last week we looked at, he comes in the room, and Esther is being assaulted, quote-unquote assaulted by Haman. Haman's not assaulting her. He's begging her for his life. The king gets the wrong idea. That's why Haman's hanged. But I think in the more general sense, this is the consequence for messing with the Jews. There is a little bit of leave us alone in this, right? This is what's going to happen if you continue to pursue us. So in total in Susa, 800 people are killed in this battle. It's kind of a battle. I don't know. It's hard to say. It's 800's not that many. So I don't know if you would really call it a battle. Is, is this sort of conflict that brews in Susa. Of course, outside of Susa, in the rest of the empire, there's a lot of killing going on. Verse 16. The rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. And again, that sounds like a large number, but in each city, I don't think it's that much, right? This is spread throughout the 127 provinces of Persia. It's not that many at any one location, but overall in the empire, 75,000 people. And again, the, in the iteration or the repeat, they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th day, they rested and made that day of, of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th and the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that day a festival of gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th, of the, of 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And so the story concludes as we come to the end of this, this is not the end of the book, the last part of the book is really the whole point of the book. The establishment of a holiday. And as you're reading this book in Israelite context, the context of Israel overall, this is one of the later books written in the Old Testament, right? This is a post-exilic book, although written in the time of exile, perhaps, way late in the history of Israel. The point of the book is this holiday, the last chapter as we think about chapters, the last section of the book, as you're reading this in history, you're an Israelite in the intertestamental period, you're thinking about why do we do this thing, the Feast of Purim, why are we celebrating this? This is the story. This is the reason. This is what we're doing. This is the holiday and where it came from. Esther 9 verse 20. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far. It's probable that this book, the book of Esther, is a compilation of Mordecai's things. He's written all these letters and he's sent them out and he's distributed them. And the book is then a compilation of Mordecai's 
record of these things, uh, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month at R and also the 15th day, year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into holiday. Again, in the theme of the book, the reverse occurred. There was sorrow into gladness and mourning into holiday. And you can think about, again, think about in the first month, not January, I've lost the name of the first month, doesn't matter. In the first month, this decree is sent out. We're going to destroy all the Jews. And then for three months, there's this period of mourning, and this is a horrible year, and we have a whole year to think about this, and it's going to be awful, and we're all sad, and there's a lot of fasting and wailing and weeping and mourning. And then in the third month, Esther gets it together with Mordecai. They go approach the king. There's this confrontation. And then we have, again, nine more months of the Jews preparing, getting ready. Maybe there's a cel- there is a definitely a celebration in the third month. Hooray, we get to defend ourselves. But then the twelfth month comes, and this whole year has been building up to this thing, this event, this day, when they have victory. They succeed. They're victorious over their enemies, and so that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Now, upon first read, you might think to yourself, well, yeah, that's, that's basically Christmas, because we keep saying the 12th month. It should be noted that due to the complexities of the interaction between the Jewish and Gregorian calendars, this is actually March or April, uh, just based on the way the calendars interact, the Jewish calendar and the Israelite calendar. And side note, this is totally irrelevant. That's not irrelevant to the point. It's, it's mostly irrelevant for us today. The Jewish calendar actually has two calendars. There is a civil calendar and there is a festival calendar or a, a calendar that is all the holidays are based on, all of the religious holidays in the Old Testament. This is, of course, going off the religious calendar, not the civil calendar, which makes this March and April is when these typically take place. In March and April, in in the Gregorian calendar, that's us. Our calendar is the Gregorian calendar. A day of feasting and gladness and for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Commemorating what? They're commemorating this thing. We keep reading in verse 23. The Jews accepted what they had started to do. Notice they had already started to celebrate. They had this festival. They had the feasting. They had the gladness. And then Mordecai and Esther, they codify this into something they're going to keep doing. Uh, what Mordecai had written to them, for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure. Again, this is the Feast of Purim. That's how it's going to be commemorated forevermore. The Feast of Lots, we would say in English, because ultimately this is a thing of lots. Haman cast lots for a whole year. We looked at this several weeks ago. Haman had his wise men cast lots for a whole year. What am I going to do about Mordecai? And in the casting of lots, a random chance through which God obviously has opportunity to fudge the probabilities, to make it come out to what God wants it to be, arrives at this plan, this date, this time, and the end result, he wants to crush and destroy. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim after the term pure. The feast is commemorating when God used pure, the casting of lots, to ultimately bring disaster upon Israel's enemies. 
And so what is the end result? They firmly obligated themselves. Uh, therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and what they had faced in this matter of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves. That is, we are definitely going to do this. Their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time, appointed every year. These days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Not just the Jews in Susa, not just the Jews in Persia, but all Jews everywhere are going to commemorate these two days as a remembrance of what God had done for the Israelites at this time, the goodness of God. And so the book of Esther overall as we bring it to a conclusion tonight, is a lesson in the importance of remembering God's goodness, of how important it is to celebrate and commemorate the things he has done year after year, generation after generation, in perpetuity, remembering the things that God has done, both corporately as a group, the Israelites, but, of course, we're thinking about the application for us individually, what God has done for us. Now, the first instance of this is way back in Genesis 6 through 8. The idea of the importance of remembering is actually not even us remembering, but God. Genesis 9, 4, 14 through 7, uh, 16, this is after the flood. And, of course, they come out of the, the ark, and the waters have receded, and they make this sacrifice— and God makes this covenant. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again because of, become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Now, it's a little bit weird, right? God doesn't need help remembering. But God, this early on, is establishing the significance of ritual and remembrance. Now, in this particular case, nobody controls the instigating event of remembrance. It's just the rainbow. It just happens, right? It happens a lot. But again, the significance of remembering, that there has been a, a significant event here that needs to be remembered. And this continues all throughout the Old Testament. The Passover is an event of remembrance that so we're going to commemorate. We're going to remember the Exodus. Every year, we're going to remember this thing that God did for us, brought us out of the land of Egypt. It was really the instigating event of, our, of their society. The story of Judges. If you look at the story of Judges, what happens when people forget? Over and over and over. A judge arises, helps them remember who God is, what God wants. That judge dies and they forget again, and they are rebellious and disobedient. And then God brings another judge to remind them, to, to help them remember what God's goodness is like. And then that judge dies, and they forget again, and they disobey, and they rebel. And the cycle continues over and over in, es in, in uh, the story of Judges. The songs of Israel, if you think about not just in the Psalms, a lot of the Psalms are this way, but even songs that are written throughout the narrative books. We have the Song of Miriam after the Exodus, the Song of Moses. We have a couple of different songs all throughout the, the books of history in, in the Bible 
The songs are full of admonitions to remember and proclaim. We'll read one, 1 Chronicles 16, verse 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. This is just a sampling. We're not going to read any more in the Old Testament. So many of their songs are full of this language. Remember, remember, remember. And then not just remember, but tell it, say it, proclaim it, preach it. Remind your kids, your children's children, that we will remember the things that God has done. Ultimately, why did God care so much? that people remember what he did. Well, there's a more broad point to be made, just in a general sense. Don't you hate it when people forget what you do? Right? You, we do things for people. We're kind, we're generous, we're nice. And it, it kind of stinks when people forget. People don't remember. Hey, that, that nice thing that I did. I think God, similarly, if we're thinking about praising him and glorifying his name, part of that is remembering the things that he's done for us. The phrase, lest you forget, or variations of it, occur ten times in Deuteronomy. The book that comes at the end of the first five, right, as they're about to enter into the land of Canaan, they're going to go in Joshua and start conquering the land. And Deuteronomy, sort of the last will and testament of Moses, he's been leading the people all this time. Moses is going to die. He knows it. God knows it. And so what is Moses afraid of? I'm going to die, and you guys are going to forget. Don't forget the things that we have been through, the exodus, the wanderings, all of the different things that they'd been through. Why? A couple of things. Forgetting would lead to idolatry. We're not going to read these verses, but Deuteronomy 4.23, 6.12 through 15.8.19, Moses reminds them several times, if you forget what God has done, you'll start worshiping other gods. You'll worship idols. You'll worship the gods of the Canaanites. Don't forget, or you'll start worshiping other gods. Forgetting would lead to pride. It says this in 8 and 9. If you go into the land of Canaan and you forget what God did, you're going to think, oh, I'm so great. That this happened because of our goodness. This happened because of our strength. This happened because of our righteousness. Moses' point, don't forget. Or you'll, you'll start thinking that you did it. That it's about you. You need to remember that God did it. Forgetting would lead to ultimately disobedience, right? Well, I'm so great. I don't really need to follow God. It's my goodness, my awesomeness. We have idolatry going on, but it's going to lead to more disobedience, not just idolatry, but all sorts of disobedience. So they're not going to obey the commands because they've forgotten. Either they've forgotten the commands or they've forgotten why they needed to follow them. Ultimately, forgetting would lead to destruction. You're going to go into the land of Canaan. You're going to forget what God's done, both good and bad, right? Don't forget the exodus. Also, don't forget the, the wilderness wanderings where all of you had to die because you rebelled. When you forget these things, you're going to go into idolatry. You're going to be prideful. You're going to be disobedient. And God's going to have to bring justice because of that disobedience and pride and idolatry. And ultimately, what forgetting is going to do to the Israelites, we see this over and over and over again. We see it in Judges. We see it in the Kings. We see it over and over and over Forgetting what God did led to destruction. And in fact, the story of Esther is backdropped by forgetting. They forgot 
And that's why they're in Persia in the first place. Why they're at the mercy of Ahasuerus. Why they're in Susa. Because they forgot the goodness of God. They forgot why they needed to obey. They forgot what God wanted. And so God sent the Babylonians to, well, first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to conquer them, to destroy them, to bring them into captivity. Now, of course, as we conclude, we have our own rituals, that should say rituals, that are helped, uh, designed to help us remember the providence of God. The most immediate and obvious, which we'll read in about in a minute, is the Lord's Supper. But we have others. Isn't that part of the point of our songs? The songs that we sing Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, and I hope that you're singing at home. The songs that you're singing as a family. Why do we sing these songs? To remember what God has done. To remember not just one day a week, not just two days a week, but hopefully you're remembering these things anytime those songs come to mind. That's what Israelite songbook was full of, the Psalms, full of that. All throughout the, the Old Testament, these songs that Israel sang to remember and commemorate, we do the same thing, hopefully, right? We're doing the same thing when we sing. We're reminding ourselves of what God has done when we pray. Hopefully, we're remembering. And the, the outlet of remembering in prayer is gratitude, thanksgiving. When we thank God in our prayers, that is a function of remembrance, right? That's a function of bringing to mind the good things that God has done for us. So we have these same things in our, in our relationship, our covenant with God. Of course, I think the most central of these, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Usually we read this of the Lord's Supper, but it's important to read now. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, if you remember from our Bible study this morning in Bible class, this word delivered, a thing handed down, this tradition, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All the same warnings, consequences, dangers of forgetting apply to Christians. That if we forget what God has done, it will lead us to idolatry, pride, and disobedience. Now, idolatry is not going to look the same for us. We're not worshiping Baal or Ashtra. We're not going to worship the gods of the Canaanites, but we are going to elevate things to the position of God. Might be family, might be our jobs, might be Hollywood, whatever you want to put in there. Might be self. We forget God's goodness, God's actions, God's awesomeness, God's glory. We begin to have idolatry. It's going to lead us to pride. Think about the things that we've overcome in our lives and we forget God's role in that. Oh, it's because I'm so awesome. It's because I'm so great. I'm so skillful. Whatever you want to put in there, same thing's going to happen to us. It's going to lead to disobedience. I don't really need to do these things. I don't really need to obey these commands because we forget why I'm supposed to obey. We forget why it's so important that we do what God wants. And of course, the ultimate consequence is the same. And in fact, I would say the ultimate consequence is worse for us. The loss of the promised land in Israel was catastrophic. 
But the consequence for forgetting today is eternal. To lose the promised land that God has offered to us. Which is why, and we'll end with this verse, Revelation 3, 1 through 3. The Bible ends, the book of Revelation. We've been studying it on Wednesday night. I'm going to remind you, Revelation 10 and 11 for this Wednesday. Read it again, even if you read it the first time. The book of Revelation is a reminder. The Bible ends with a reminder. A reminder of what? God's going to win. God is the ultimate authority. A reminder that, yeah, you're going to be persecuted. A reminder that we need to be faithful, to remain faithful. Why? The angel of the church of Sardis. To the angel of the church of Sardis, right. This is the words of Jesus, right? The words of him who has seven spirits of God, the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I come against you. The ultimate warning of Revelation, of course, to remember, or the same things that happened to Israel time and time again is going to happen to you. We must learn from Esther and Mordecai. Now, we've learned a lot about providence throughout the book. Hopefully, we've, we've seen a lot of different lessons about what providence looks like, the forms it takes, the difficulty in discerning it, but ultimately remembering the providence of God. And they went so far as to institute a national holiday. We're going to do this every year, so we remember. Remember that God does have control. Remember that God is looking out for us. Remember that God does bring justice to his enemies, we similarly need to remember. That's why we partake every week. Sometimes a mass, of course, is a, this is one of the unusual things about our fellowship. We partake of the Lord's Supper every week. Why? How long does it take to forget? I don't know, 24 hours? Doesn't take very long, right? We need to remember. So we come every week, we partake of the Lord's Supper. But again, I would encourage you to remember every day. Worship, prayer, talking about things with our children, with our families. To get in the habit every day of bringing to mind the goodness of what God has done. The importance of obeying his commands. The blessings of being in his family. To bring those to mind often.